Welcome back to the New Chicago Way podcast for another episode. On this episode, we are talking about city finances. And it's very easy to get caught up uh, in the news cycle on TV and in newspapers and online about can the city make this payment? Uh, the city's hiking this fee. The city made this much off red light cameras. The city needs to hike property taxes this much. Uh, those are the types of day-to-day things that we all uh, hear and see and read about in Chicago. Uh, But at the heart of city finances is really everything that the city is able to do, whether that's police, fire, schools. This all depends on prudent, smart management of the city's money. And as we found in the book, yet again, Chicago is an outlier in this way. Um, So that's what we talked about throughout the chapter. Ed, if you want to say just a bit about what we found. Certainly. This chapter of the book talks about city finances, and I think most people in Chicago read that the city's in bad shape, but they don't really understand the magnitude of it, and they don't understand the details, and more importantly, they don't understand what are the practices that keep us in this trouble. So this chapter uh, leads the individual through that, uh, and it concludes with some very good financial practices, uh, many of which we drew from the research by the Government Financial Officers Association, which ironically is based in Chicago on LaSalle Street. Just up the street, yeah. So we'll talk about those a little bit later, but to set the stage, I'd like to just talk about a few facts that are startling in Chicago. Uh, Chicago has the highest per capita general obligation debt of any of the top 15 cities that we studied as we were writing this chapter. And it continues to grow. Whenever there's a problem, when there is a, a recurring or structural deficit, the city borrows it on its credit card, which is what we call the general obligation debt. And yet, Uh, everybody writes about a structural deficit. We explain it in the book. But to get a picture of it, let's look at the comparison between Chicago and Los Angeles. Los Angeles is more than twice the size of Chicago land area, has 45% more people, and yet both cities spend about the same number of dollars on their police department and on their fire department. So if Chicago just had parity with Los Angeles, uh, in terms of those two departments, it would be saving $650 million a year. That would go so far into solving our problems, paying down debt, and actually making our pension payments. So these are the kind of uh, outlier statistics that we talk about in the book. That's where we refer to the Government Financial Officers Association and their vast literature on what best practices are for government. So uh, in a minute, we'll talk to Shane Kavanaugh, and we'll have a lively conversation about what they do. Shane Kavanaugh. Senior Research Manager for the Government <laughs> Finance Officers Association. Welcome to the new Chicago Way podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. So I wanted to get in, before we get into sort of Chicago stuff, 
you guys have this new initiative that I think anyone in Chicago should read, anyone in public finance should read, anyone interested in these types of issues. Um, it's called the fi Financial Foundations for Thriving Communities program. Uh, could you start off just by talking a little bit of what the inception of that was and, and how you're trying to sort of apply it? Sure, and maybe first just a little background on GFOA for those in the audience that are not familiar with us. Uh, we're a professional association of local government finance officials and state finance officials from across the U.S. and Canada. We've got about uh, 20,000 members, just crossed 20,000 threshold recently, and been around since 1906. And the initiative you're referring to is uh, something we've been working on over the past couple of years. Kind of the idea here is that financial sustainability is an ongoing concern for GFOA members. So, for example, in our latest member survey, um, we asked folks to tell us what their top concern was, and we gave them a lot of latitude on how they answered this. And so when we categorize them, about seven of those ten qualify as being concerned with financial sustainability. So this is a big concern for folks. And there's been a lot of progress being made in our profession recently. I know we'll probably talk about some of these issues as part of today's conversation, but for instance, our surveys show that um, the majority of GFW members now do long-term forecasts as part of their budgeting and planning, um, whereas eight years ago when we started doing this, it was more like 10%. Um, so this is good. Um, however, things like you guys are concerned about, pensions, infrastructure, these are problems bedeviling many local governments. So. Um, we need to figure out for GFOA what's next, you know, what's the next stage of evolution in and our one, profession. And just briefly, when you talk about your membership, these are people in budget offices, these are actuaries. Um, no, who, sure. are, who are some of those people? Um, yeah, it's actually a, good, a great question there. So um, our kind of, if you will, prototypical member is the CFO of a municipal government. Um, we also include counties. Um, school districts are our fastest growing membership segment. Um, and also, we go beyond the folks in the budget office. So for instance, the CEO of the city of Portland was our president a few years back. Um, our current executive director was a former city manager. So we also get a lot of interest and involvement from folks in, we'll call it finance adjacent uh, parts of local government. And uh, and then, sorry, back to back to the initiative. No. I derailed you. No, that's that was super okay. helpful. Thank you. <laughs> no sweat. Um, but so, yeah, trying to figure out what's next, um, we decided to take a look at a Nobel Prize winning body of work called Compool Resource Theory. And the, the premise of this work is really captured by an economic parable that some folks in your audience might be familiar with called the Tragedy of the Commons. And how this works or how this goes is you've got a commonly owned grazing area and the farmers who surround this grazing area own it collectively. And as individuals, they have the incentive to send their animals onto this grazing area as much as possible to graze because if they don't, the next farmer is going to do it. And one farmer is the farmer who doesn't send his animals. Those animals will be sitting at home doing nothing while the other farmer's animals are getting fat and happy, right? So everyone's incentive is send the animals onto the grazing area as much as possible. Over time, the area is grazed down to nothing and you get the tragedy of the commons. Our premise is that local government budget is very much the same. It's a shared resource owned by all the members of the community, departments, who, what have you. And their incentive is very similar. Um, get yours, um, because if you don't, the next guy will. And so everyone is doing this and ultimately financial stress is going to ensue. So this um, body of work that won a Nobel Prize led by Elnor Ostrom professor actually out of Indiana, um, describes a solution to this sort of problem in a natural resource context. So we translated her work to a public finance context and then proved it out, our translation that is, um, using about 25 different case studies of local governments of different sizes and types across the U.S. 
That's fantastic. So just reading some of the some of the main findings we can go through really quickly, but five essential key points here. One, and, and this sort of reads like a laundry list of what the city of Chicago is not doing, and that's my opinion on chains, of course. But uh, first, establish a long-term vision. Um, second, build trust and open communication. Third, use collective decision-making. Four, create clear rules. And five, treat everyone fairly. Sounds good, Ed. Yeah, this is ideal. Uh, we have a utopia that is being espoused right up the street on LaSalle Street in Chicago. So, uh, Shane, thanks for coming to talk with us. Uh, I'm going to get right to the point here. Uh, how do you approach these five points in an environment where the central activity is the negotiation of a collective bargaining agreement? Sure. Um, well, in our research, you know, we our case studies included local governments that were in severe financial distress, including um, the largest county government in the United States by land area and the 12th most populous in the United uh, States, so not small. Um, so very large, like city of Chicago, $80 million deficit, which was 10% uh, of their general operating revenue, and at the same time, improving salary and benefit increases for employees um, under collective bargaining agreements. So um, probably not too dissimilar from Chicago. I'm sure in the details there's some differences, but big picture, this is not like things are going great and we're just going to make it even better. Um, things are definitely going the wrong direction, right? Mm -hmm. And so what they decided to do is they actually start out um, by a change in leadership so it may be not too dissimilar from what's going on in chicago right now in some ways and i don't know that that's required in all cases but in their case that was a good catalyst as they brought in a new ceo who was known in the area as being someone who is trustworthy and whatnot and one of their first steps was to actually establish a vision because the idea being is well why should anyone care about the financial sustainability of this county if we're not giving people a good kind of a reason to support it, right? So, and kind of even more importantly, is the county government, like many local governments, want to solve very intractable problems that are of concerns to people, like third grade literacy being a great example. Um, we need to solve this, we need to do better for the people of this county, and to get people excited about it, we need to have a shared vision to solve problems like uh, third grade literacy, and what that did for them is it attracted a lot of people to the county and to support what the county was trying to do, including probably unsurprisingly the school district saying, hey, you know what, we'd like to work with you guys to get this done because there's a lot of potential synergy here, right? Because like, just let's take continue with our example of third grade reading. Um, kids need to get uh, arrive at school ready to learn, right? Um, schools, however, are not social service agencies. Turns out, though, the county is. So by working together, right, county social services can kind of provide the mental health and that sort of support that kids need to be ready to learn. So there's potential benefit there. Um, even more importantly, you're bringing in the private and nonprofit sector, a lot of extra resources that local governments don't have. So even in the best financial conditions, so let's just imagine Chicago turns it around, it's kind of it's doing awesome. No local government, including Chicago, is going to have all the resources to deal with these types of problems. It's going to take a combined efforts so or bringing in these nonprofit and private sector organizations, attracting them to the vision, it's a resource um, force multiplier, if you will. So just like a fun example um, is the local minor league baseball team said, hey, what, you guys are working on third grade literacy as a county? We want in on that. Uh, we want to have read to your child day at the local ballpark. And so they did. And again, that's not going to be like the game changer, but 
it's kind of just a fun example of how some unexpected folks want to get on board with this and provide support to what the county and the school district were trying to do. And of course, there are a lot more of your traditional nonprofits and private sectors that you might expect to want to be involved in this also getting involved. So the key to Chicago's turnaround is going to be leveraging the Chicago Dogs, the Rosemont, the new Rosemont minor league team. That's what I'm hearing. Um, so in our finance chapter, we had uh, three really, and, and when we tried to talk about city finances and get out of the muck of like, what's, what's the mayor going to do this year to make this payment? We tried to talk about the structural elements of that. So uh, the three things we kind of looked at structurally across the 15 largest cities were do you have an elected city manager or CFO? Probably someone who would be a member of GFOA. Mm -hmm. um, do you have robust city council involvement in budgeting? And do you have some kind of voter approval for new taxes or debt? Uh, and Chicago was the only one out of the top 15 that had none of those three. Um, can you speak a little bit? You, you don't have to talk about those specifically, but just those structural elements, how that affects city budgeting and oh, the yeah, future sure. of the city. They're happy to do so. In fact, um, our annual conference we did this year was in LA um, just a couple weeks ago. and. Knowing as coming on this podcast, I had a chance to talk with Ron Gellerpin, the elected controller there, mm -hmm. and just get his opinion. What do you think of this question? He's like, and he said, you can quote me on this, um, is that it could be great or it could be a disaster in terms of elected control. Because like, if you get the right person off in office, it's amazing. If you don't, um, not so amazing. And it also depends, of course, on the kind of strength of the supporting professional staff that you have in place. You know, are these people going in and out? with each elected official, or is there some continuity? So I think in the, that's probably Ron's uh, take on this is probably the right one, where it it's introduces a lot of potential um, for good, but it introduces a lot of potential perhaps the other way as well. When we were writing the <clears throat> finances chapter of the book, we sought to first find out what are the good practices. We call them normative practices. How should a city run its finances? And the best resource that we found was the GFOA. All of the booklets and papers that you have published. And uh, they were just uh, fantastic. And they talked about uh, setting the priorities, trade-offs, budgeting, not having structural deficits, all of the good practices that are missing in Chicago but present in so many other cities. But the one thing that we concluded is that there is an escape hatch, and that is borrowing. Mm -hmm. uh, and if a city can borrow, uh, and, and we call it general obligation debt, it's not any kind of special revenue debt that is backed by a stream of revenue, it's just uh, uh, open credit card debt, uh, then they can continue to have poor practices just like an individual can forever. And so I guess two questions. Uh, first of all, do you have any uh, municipal bond or lenders that are members of the GFOA or do, you, do they come in and consult with you on a regular basis? And second of all, uh, what are your uh, ad, uh, words of advice for people who are on the budget committee or are elected officials as far as this credit card borrowing by municipalities? Sure. Um, great question. So to answer your question, number one, we have many, many folks who are debt experts who are involved in GFOA uh, very closely. In fact, we have a standing committee on debt that works on developing policy guidance and that sort of thing for GFOA members. 
Uh, number two, I, you know, I'd probably refute your characterization of debt as kind of an open credit card, if you will, to some extent, because it's kind of more like a mortgage for your house, right? No one pays cash up front unless you're very wealthy um, for their house, right? Um, you need to borrow to get the resources to do these things. So let's say a town's going to build a new police station. Um, that, to me, would be a situation where general obligation debt would be highly appropriate use of resources, because how would you charge people, right, for public safety? Um, general taxes is a pretty good way to do that. Um, kind of developing a user fee stream, and there's something called revenue debt um, that is a tool to do that, but you know, one might question for something like a police station, just for instance, that... Sh in what fee do you use? For right, it? exactly, right. right. Yeah. What would be the basis for a sure. public safety fee on that? Um, so, but, so that aside, um, you know, kind of getting to your next part of your question about, you know, what sort of guidance would GFOA offer, the way we look at it is... Uh, Really, the foundation for all this is a debt policy in your local government, and a few key things that we talk about is, um, number one, is to set some kind of limit on the amount of debt that your local government will incur locally. Um, so I used to be assistant city manager in a suburb of Illinois. That's my professional background before GFOA. And the state of Illinois had a debt limit that they had for municipalities. And if our little suburb ever approached that amount, we would be bankrupt about 20 times over. So you know, that is probably not a good limit for our mm -hmm. suburb. We need our own limit that makes sense for us. So that's number one is to do that. So that's when we talk about boundary setting. You have to have these boundaries established. Uh, number two is, and I think this is probably getting right to your question, is this is kind of like, I would call it like the, like the, I don't know if crown jewel is the right word, but this is like the thing in GFY guidance. Like if you do anything, do this. Mm -hmm is to match the length of debt issuance to the useful life of the underlying asset. So right. if you've got, let's say, to go to our police station example, it's gonna last 20 years, but the repayment period on this bond is 30. This is a problem. And the idea being is that the folks who are paying off that bond in years 20 through 30 are no longer enjoying the benefit of this police station because it's become defunct or whatever else, and maybe the city is now building a new police station that those people are also paying debt on. So they're paying down the old one plus the new one is not a good situation. So there's, there's many other, GFWA has a lot of guidance on this and I could probably fill up a whole podcast talking about it, which you'd probably have a lot less <laughs> listeners at that point. So I'll stop there and just say- That'll it, be it, behind the paywall yeah, if we exactly. ever do do that, yeah. <laughs> but those would be kind of, if you're trying to, if you do anything, do this, those would probably be the two that I'd point out as you know pretty, foundational. Shane, uh, that's an excellent answer. And I, I just like to interject for anyone listening to this podcast, if you're really interested in how things should work, look at the GFOA website. It's easy to read and there's great information on how things should work. And it looks like you experienced that in your previous occupation. Oh, sure. Yeah. Now you referred to one thing that uh, uh, is is not widely talked about uh, directly, and that is the provision in the Illinois Constitution that puts limits on municipalities. Uh, by the same token, we hear constantly that there are too many units of government in Illinois. Uh, we have something like over 7,000 units of government, and the and the next largest state, which I think is Texas, is under 4,000. I think it's more like 9,000. Yeah, yeah. There's, that's, yeah. The, that's the craziest thing is there's not even a, a great, no, there's a U.S. Census number, and then right. there's a number yeah, that Illinois place. has, and there's a difference between the taxing body. Yeah, mm -hmm. well. But, but that's created by that constitutional provision. Mm -hmm. It causes uh, the metastasizing of units of government. 
if you can't borrow up to your limit, you create another unit of government so that they can borrow up. And, and even in Chicago, we have, we relate in the book to the seven sisters. So that's why the park district and the Chicago public schools and the water reclamation district and the forest preserve and all these others are separate units of government. Sure. So uh, I presume that you would recommend somehow conforming the constitution so that it doesn't have that unintended consequence. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, well, every state has its limits like this, this is a very common thing. Um, but yet Illinois only is the one that has like by far the highest number of uh, local governments per capita. So it is, it is definitely a very interesting phenomenon that you bring up. And it's probably one that I would guess is multifaceted underlying causes. So I definitely agree with where you're going that you know this is probably an unusual circumstance in Illinois that we should think about here is whether this is really the best way to organize our local governments. But there's probably more things that need to happen. Um, in addition to looking at whether these limits are truly useful guidance. But I agree definitely with your underlying idea there for sure. So in our book, uh, it's our claim that uh, the amount of general obligation debt per capita and overall in Chicago is an outlier compared to other cities. Mm -hmm. You're making the case for the fact that there can be some level of general obligation debt, but the GFOA gives guidelines on how much there should be. And so if you take these conflicting concepts, uh, is there, how would you approach looking at Chicago's uh, general obligation debt and, uh, and uh, making a plan to bring it down, cutting it down to size? Um, we recommend in the book paying it all off you're saying, well, don't pay it all off. Get it down to a certain size. How do we come to that number? Well, let me just full disclosure. I'm not an expert on Chicago city finances, so I can't really speak to the specificities of Chicago situation. But I think generally speaking, um, I know you guys did some benchmark analysis, for example, in your book where you're looking at what other cities are maintaining. That's a very quick and easy way uh, to start orientating yourself. So if like this is what other cities have found affordable, that's a pretty good clue that if you're kind of out of range of your benchmarks that this is a good place to start looking i don't think benchmarks are the end all and be all and i don't and i'm just i'm not saying you guys said they were they're clues they're kind of good kind of markers to look at so i think that's a great place to start looking um, beyond that i think you have to get into a detailed analysis of your own revenue streams to see what kind of revenues you have to support this debt um, we call that a debt affordability analysis in our parlance where you're looking at what you've got coming in um, to pay off debt potentially like in some localities, they have specialized tax streams that are intended to pay off general obligation debt on an ongoing basis to see what those are and then to see what you can afford uh, relative to what you've got coming in. In writing the book, we interviewed Richard Ravitch, who uh, oversaw the near bankruptcy of New York City in 1975. And one of his initial criticisms is that they didn't use generally accepted accounting practices. Uh, and yet we try to understand the financial statements of Chicago and we can't even understand them, let alone using generally accepted accounting practices. What is the position of the GFOA on that? on generally accepted accounting principles yes. for budgeting? Mm -hmm. um, GFOA doesn't have an official position on that, but I can tell you it's 
fairly rare among GFWA membership. In fact, um, knowing you guys were going to ask this, um, at our conference now, I've asked our budget committee, you know, just say, guys, when? It's like, we've never heard of it. Um, so mm -hmm. It's not something people talk about. And I think the reason that is, is that people kind of use some of these underlying ideas already in their budget. They just don't call it general accepted accounting okay. principles budgeting. Mm -hmm. And the reason, and for those of you that are listening, I was using air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know there. Um, so yeah. Are they generally accepted if we call them that? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah. They, well, people use it in their financial reporting for sure, right? Yes. But that's very different from budgeting, right? Budgeting is a forward-looking plan sure. that is going to be wrong the day you publish it, quite frankly, because that is the nature of a forward-looking right. plan with forecasts based on uncertain economic assumptions, whereas a financial report is supposed to be to the you know kind of very precise and like this is what actually happened uh, last year right so these are two very different purposes of a financial document so the extent is kind of I think you know where the kind of surprise came from is like why would we do that you know mm. and then even kind of more um, kind of to your point is like just let's take New York for example I just saw something um, very recently where New York has to seek a an adjustment to and again I'm not an expert on New York budgeting here either but um, they do use GAAP for their they do. for their budget, yes. not not just reporting. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so, but in their case, they are now, I guess, seeking an adjustment to state law because under um, kind of a gap budgeting approach, they're not allowed to have a rainy day fund because they have to have their sources equal their uses. So carrying over something from one period to the next doesn't work under gap budgeting. And having a rainy day fund is like if I mentioned like GFOA best practices where there's like kind of some that stand above the rest. Um, that would be one that stands above the rest is you should have some kind of risk buffer in your financial plan where if something bad happens, let's say um, any nature of natural disaster, recession, you name it, there are many reasons why you may have unexpected expenditures or revenues that fail to live up to your forecasts. You need to be ready for that. Um, and if you don't have a rainy day fund of a sufficient size, you can be in a lot of trouble. And so New York is having to seek adjustments to have a rainy day fund officially um, because the gap budgeting as it now stands doesn't allow them technically to do that i'm not again not an expert my understanding is they've kind of found ways to sort of work around that within gap budgeting so i'm not suggesting they are without any kind of risk protection but to kind of make it official and they're looking they might need a, an adjustment to their um, state law to allow them to do mm -hmm. that shane i'd like to dwell on something that you just referred to a few minutes ago uh, so that we can explain it, and then I'll end it with a specific question for sure. you. And that is, budgeting is a forward look at how you're going to do before you begin the year. At the end of that year, then, the municipality or unit of government produces their financial statement, uh, generally called the Comprehensive Annual Financial Review or Statement. And uh, quite often, as you've noted, the performance is a lot different from the budget. And as you've noted, that CAFR, that financial statement, is prepared with generally accepted accounting principles, but the budget isn't necessarily. So my question for you is, do you ever see instances where a city compares budget to actual to see how they did and have some kind of a discussion there. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's one of our another one of our best practices when you do a forecast is to compare your forecast to what actually happened because you can't improve, right? If you're not seeing like, hey, what went right with our forecast, what went that was like not so right, and what can we learn from that? So that would be kind of yeah, pretty. I agree with you. Very fundamental um, to 
doing this because to your point kind of the CAFR and the budget is not always like the best comparison because a budget may is not going to be prepared on the same kind of stringent accounting basis that a budget is they're kind of have these two separate purposes that don't allow for them to be like the compared totally apples to apples it gives you an idea but it's not quite like you're saying these two numbers don't tie together exactly and it's because they're prepared for fundamentally different purposes to begin with you said earlier I'm going to keep saying it, even though you said it wasn't the right term, but crown jewel of, of GFOA. <laughs> um, one of them was, hey, let's not be paying debt uh, down the road. People shouldn't be paying that for a service that they didn't, um, that did not benefit them in any way. Um, if you had to pick a couple others, um, just re really high level stuff, what would you say? Crown round jewels, out, you mean? Round out the crown jewels. Oh, and oh. the name of this podcast is going to be oh, Crown right. Jewels. <laughs> <Kavna>. <laughs> all right, good. Uh, all right, well, we've got plenty of those. I've uh, got a big crown, many jewels. <laughs> so the, um, I'd say one-time revenue policy is definitely up there, mm -hmm. um, which means if you get a revenue that you do not expect to get in future periods, you should not spend that money on ongoing things. So let's just say like simple example, um, we decide, well, really simple example is don't use your fund balance to pay salaries because your fund balance goes away. Um, it's not there next year because you just spent it, but those salaries remain. So unless you're like, say, trying to get through extraordinary circumstances like a recession. So like we've seen some great examples of where people said, hey, recession happened. We don't want to lay everyone off because this is when people need social services the most and public safety and all that. We're going to use our reserves as a bridge and they have a little bridge plan where this we're doing it for like say two periods, that's it. And you know, by two periods, we have to have landed at a financially sustainable um, pattern in our budget. So that would be an exception to the rule. But generally speaking, you know, one-time revenue is not a good source for funding ongoing expenditures. That would be a pretty good one. So we wouldn't want to say sell all the rights to all parking concessions for 75 years and then spend that money uh, in two years. For for example, theoretically. Theoretically, okay. yes. <laughs> and then um, another, let's see, another good one. Um, I think structurally balanced budget is another good one. It's very mm -hmm. similar um, where the idea is your ongoing revenue should equal your ongoing expense. So this goes back to state policy. We were talking about this earlier. States usually say you need a balanced budget in local government, and that just means sources equal uses. So if you sold off City Hall, that considered a source, <laughs> you use mm -hmm. it to pay salaries, that's considered a use, you're good. Um, under state law, but to like our point, you know, it's better to have local guidance that fits your circumstances a little more precisely. So do you have a local balanced budget definition that say asks you to balance your one-time uses and your one-time expenditures with your ongoing uses and your ongoing revenues? And for bigger cities, to be honest, there can be a little um, flexibility there. So that like a really large local government may actually get so many one-time revenues every year that there actually is some portion of that that's dependable. And you can statistically analyze that easily enough. So there's a, that certainly could be an exception made for a really large government, but the underlying premise still holds. That's in that case we call a volatile revenue source where, okay, you know, maybe it's on, you do get something every year, but it's very volatile. So if you budget in an average revenue, say you have a 50% chance of having a deficit every year, right? Because average is the middle coin flip chance of having a deficit, probably not a good, um, we'll say, uh, risk profile for you. But I'd say that would be probably two more that I would say would be really important if I'm picking like top ones. Great. Um, maybe funding your infrastructure, that would be, we didn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, long-term capital planning is a really big one. Um, mm -hmm. So having a long-term capital plan of 
um, at least five years, you know, preferably longer, that says this is the capital assets that we plan to buy and you know, acquire over the next five years, plus a funding strategy to pay for these things um, would be important. And here's their operational impact. I think we've all probably heard horror stories in the municipal world of, say, someone buys a new library but doesn't, didn't account for the staffing and they've got an empty library on day one because oh, we didn't budget the books mm -hmm. to buy or the librarians to staff it. So taking into account the operational impacts of these things is well within part of your capital planning. And what, wrapping up a bit, but you said a lot of case studies obviously went into uh, to this new program. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, so when we talk about those three practices that we just talked about, the one-time one uh, versus you know long-term revenues, balancing the structural balance of a budget, um, can, when you see cities move forward to adopt these types of things, um, how often is that able to come internally through sort of a professional class of folks who are in the city every day and maybe going up the ladder and saying, hey, we really need this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, how often is that possible? And then how often does it just, at the end of the day, it needs to come down to sort of political leadership imposing this? Sure. Uh, it's a bit of both. Um, you know, I'd say from the political side, um, what, what I found interesting is we don't often see political folks who are like, you know what, I really find amazing financial policies. <laughs> like, this is the <laughs> best thing ever. Um, usually what it is is they have a service objective of some kind, right? And they then realize that, you know what, hey, we need the solid financial foundation to get there. Hence the name of our book, Financial Foundations for Thriving Communities, because I don't think there's a politician yet who didn't want a thriving community, right? And you need a strong financial foundation to get there. So that's kind of how we, when we've seen the kind of the political leadership um, lead on these types of issues, most commonly that's the place where it's coming from is they have this clear vision for a thriving community and realize they need the financial wherewithal to get there. And not to say there aren't, you know, political leaders who are into policy, just, I mean, financial policy for just kind of its own sake. We love those guys, but like, mm -hmm. yeah, they're just not they're as common. Yeah, yeah, they're not as common as the other folks, but they're still getting to the same place, which is great. Mm -hmm. One final question, Shane. Uh, it sounds like many of these practices would be more readily accepted when there's a city manager form of government. Would you say just your own guess, not something official from GFOA? that you have greater penetration in city manager forms of government? And that is a good question. I don't know that we've ever actually analyzed that. Um, you know, because in our case, um, we have so many types of governments, like schools, for example, don't have city managers, right, naturally. Um, neither do counties. Counties have county managers sometimes, but as far as I know, like county manager forms of government are not quite as prevalent as city manager forms of government. Plus we have special districts of all kinds, water districts, airports, all that. So city manager governments are probably, when you add all those different other folks in, are probably not a majority of GFOA membership just because we have so many folks that aren't cities, number one, and then only a portion of cities are um, going to have city managers. But I think your assertion is fair that we are probably pretty popular among the city manager crowd. Uh, I think that there's no doubt about that. Shane Kavanaugh, Senior Manager of Research for GFOA. Thank you so much for being on the New Chicago Life Podcast. We appreciate it. My pleasure to be here.